This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Commitment to Follow the Lord's Way. In the first half, Carolyn Billings shares her address, Are You All the Way In? Then in the second half, Renata Tonks-Forsty speaks on Finding Our Individual Path. I would like to let my staff and my students and my athletes know that I am just as surprised as you are to see me up here. But please don't let it shake your testimony or your confidence in BYU. When I was about four years old, I fell out of bed. My father heard me crying and came into my room to check on me. As he helped me back into bed, he asked with all the compassion of a loving father why I fell out of bed. He always loved to tell me how I looked up at him with the eye roll of a rational four-year-old and said, obviously, I wasn't in far enough. As a result, that statement <clears throat> became the question that my father would ask me every time I encountered a struggle, trial, or difficult problem. And to this day, I continue to ask myself if I am in far enough. I don't want to burst your bubble by telling you that this life will include tests, trials, and tribulations, and that some of the trials you will face in life will be excruciating. What you do need to know is that according to my friends, I am not the luckiest person in the world, and I have had my share of challenges. We will all experience affliction, so I hope that sharing how I learned to get all the way in will help you along your path in college and life. I remember being a student at this university back in the 1920s. I came from a great home and was raised by incredible parents that shared their testimony through word and deed. I felt confident as I entered BYU that I had solid footing in the church. However, it was during my college life that I started to experience small struggles in life that began to test my testimony and my commitment to our Savior. It started with having to make my own decisions to go to church, say my prayers, and read my scriptures. And then came self-doubt, the struggle of suddenly being average, the loneliness, and the experience of your first C grade thrown at you. Next comes the curveball of dating and breaking up, combined with a small amount of pressure to get married, all while you're living with roommates that don't do the dishes and no one is liking your Instagram post. Well, at least I didn't have to worry about Instagram or Facebook. It was at a particular low moment in college when I came across the hymn, Master the Tempest is Raging. The second verse described perfectly how I was feeling at that moment. Master with anguish of spirit, I bow in my grief today. The depths of my sad heart are troubled. Awaken and save, I pray. Torrents of sin and of anguish sweep over my sinking soul. And I perish, I perish, dear Master, O oh, hasten and take control. However, it is the question in the first verse, carest thou not that we perish, that continues to come to the surface whenever I'm struggling. I am sure that many of you here feel troubled and distressed. Maybe you are at that moment where I was and feel that your ship is going to capsize or sink. To those whose hearts are breaking— or feel no one is listening, you who are stressed, worried, or afraid, 
to those who bear the burdens of sin and to anyone whose hearts are pleading, Master, carest thou not that I perish? The answer is yes. Your Savior does care and love you. The Savior will always love you, no matter what. It is the follow-up question in that first verse that took me many years to understand. Then why does he sleep when the tempest rages all around me? Why does he not still the storm? Or why would he let me suffer? During these moments, it is easy to think the Savior is oblivious to our trials, when in fact the reverse is true. It is we who need to be awakened. It is we that need to turn and find him. It is we that need to continue to follow his teachings. And it is we who need to ask, am I all the way in? I found that when life became challenging, my first reaction was to turn away from my Savior. I would abandon the foundational habits of prayer, scripture study, and hope. That reaction was a choice. It was a choice that I made. The Savior didn't abandon me. I turned from the Savior because I wasn't all the way in. Often my students and athletes will sit in my office and discuss their problems or struggles. The athletes will ask, Why me? I'm trying to be good. I'm keeping the commandments. Why is the Lord allowing this to happen? No one is exempt, especially not you who are striving to do what's right. But these trials are not just to test us. They are vitally important to the process of changing who we are. At times it may seem that our trials are focused on areas of our lives with which we seem the least able to cope. Since personal growth is an intended outcome of these challenges, it should come as no surprise that our trials will be very personal. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but if you are anything like me, then you want to have growth without any challenges and to develop strength without any struggle. Unfortunately, that is not how the process of growth occurs. As much as we desire it, growth cannot come by taking the easy way. Working with athletes, I recognize that an athlete who resists rigorous training will never become a world-class athlete. Anyone who wants to improve, win, or be the best must endure the daily torture of conditioning and practice. These are not easy, and I'm familiar with all of the excuses that are used because someone is tired, sore, or lacking desire, mostly because I have used all of them. The question then becomes, are you all the way in? We must be careful that we don't resent the very thing that helps us grow and change. And we need to be grateful that we have the Savior as a coach that knows us so well and will push us so that we come to understand that we are stronger than we think. As an athletic trainer, I spend a lot of time with athletes that are injured and struggling with the challenge to heal and return to their pre-injury level. This process is not easy, especially for the natural man that has zero patience for the process of growth and a generation that is used to getting things instantly. The process to rebuild tissue and muscle strength takes time and can be painful. The most common question that I get during these moments is, will I be the same after this is over? And my response is always no. You won't be the same. If you will be all the way in and follow my treatment and rehab plan, 
You will be stronger. You will learn more about your abilities. You will be awesome. My athlete has to trust that I have been here before and know that they can and will be successful. This challenge is the same for all of us when facing a trial and going through the pain and agony of change and growth. We must continue to turn to our Savior and trust Him as He works to smooth off our rough edges. In the Book of Mormon, it often talks about how the Nephites were taught the scriptures and believed the story of Moses and how God parted the Red Sea to handle the mighty Pharaoh and Egypt's great army. In 1 Nephi, we read about the three attempts that it takes Nephi and his brothers to get the plates of Laban. The boys have tried two times and failed, so naturally, they ask the question in verse 31, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command fifty. Yea, even he can slay fifty. Then why not us? Are you ever like Laman and Lemuel, who didn't have a problem believing that God could part the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites, but they couldn't believe that God was powerful enough to help them get the plates from the mighty Laban? Or are you ever like me, believing that God helped Moses, Nephi, and Joseph Smith, but found myself doubting he would help me through my own difficult struggles? To be all the way in, you have to believe that his help is available to you now, even when you feel that you are alone in the boat. You are never truly alone. Please know you are never truly alone. He will calm the sea for you, just as he's done for those that have gone before us. Don't listen to the voice of Satan that will tell you that he sleeps because he doesn't care if you perish. In fact, the opposite is true. In Matthew, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This scripture has an invitation and a promise. The invitation is to take up his yoke. The yoke was a device of great assistance to those who tilled the field. It allowed the strength of one animal to be linked and coupled with another animal. The result was two animals sharing the load to reduce the heavy labor of the plow or the wagon. A burden that was overwhelming or perhaps impossible for one to bear could easily and comfortably be borne by two bound together with a common yoke. The promise is that once we are yoked with him— Our burden is lighter because He helps us carry it. Now, His yoke requires a great effort. We need to eliminate the idea that taking His yoke means that life will be easy and enjoyable. But let's not forget that our Savior was a carpenter. So He carved and rounded the yoke so that it fits perfectly over your shoulders. He made sure to smooth off the rough edges so it didn't dig into your back. And he has tailored his yoke perfectly for you to comfortably carry the load, thereby fulfilling the promise that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. A modern-day yoke that most of you carried with you this morning is the backpack. As you put the load of books into the backpack, adjust the straps, and wear it on both shoulders, your ability to carry the load of books increases compared to your ability to carry them in your hands. The weight is not eliminated, 
but rather the energy required to sustain the effort is reduced. As a heavy-laden college student, imagine the power and peace of standing side-by-side with the Savior. As you choose to be all the way in and take His yoke, He will be yoked to your side, always standing with you to provide the support, balance, and the strength to meet your challenges and succeed. I learned the importance of the Savior's yoke through my battles with cancer. I wasn't particularly thrilled with his plan to go through chemo and radiation, and I still wish that I had hired President Worthen to read through the small print on my contract for mortality. Nevertheless, cancer has brought me to my knees on many occasions. I learned quickly how Satan would wait until my strength was gone to cause me to doubt if God was really there for me. I had moments when I would question my testimony or wonder if I was worth saving or question if I had accomplished anything worthwhile in my life. It was at one of these low moments that I was reading the Savior's invitation in Luke 9:23, and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It didn't tell me to follow him as long as I didn't have cancer. And it didn't tell me to follow him only if I was married and had righteous children. And it didn't tell me to follow him only when I was having a good day. I learned that no matter my circumstances, I needed to deny myself and follow him daily. In other words, no matter what my struggle was, peace came as I continued to be all the way in the gospel. My staff and students and athletes will freely admit that I have a major addiction. I love sugar. Now, while chocolate, Oreos, and ice cream are delicious, they are not usually considered one of the world's most nutritious foods. With my apologies to all the faculty and students in nutrition and dietetics, I want to share how I resolved this dilemma by living my 80-20 theory of nutrition. My theory is that if I eat good food, good nutritious food 80% of the time, then I can eat what I want the other 20% of the time. I found this approach quite successful, and I have looked for other areas in my life where I can apply this theory. I found that if I exercise 80% of the time, then I can skip 20% of my workouts. And if I make my bed 80% of the time, 20% of the time it really isn't necessary. And if I got eight hours of sleep 80% of the time, I could survive on two hours of sleep when studying the night before tests and papers were due. I also realized I used the reverse of this theory when I was a student in college. When I did the dishes only 20% of the time, my roommates could do them 80% of the time. Now, this approach may have brought some success to my habit of eating and exercise, and it certainly helped my roommates learn how to wash dishes. But as often as I tried, I couldn't get the 80-20 theory to work with the gospel principles. I just couldn't find a way to keep my temple recommend by paying my tithing 80% of the time, or keeping 80% of the word of wisdom, or keeping 80% of the commandments. Living the 80-20 theory is not conducive to being all the way in and following the Savior. Living the gospel 100% of the time means doing the little things that keep us connected with the Savior every day. 
develop the habits of the small, simple requests of his gospel by committing to read your scriptures daily, say your morning, evening, and those testing center prayers daily, and find time daily to put down your phone and serve others. It surprises most people when they find out that I have a motorcycle. Now please, do not confuse this with the common scooter found on campus. I am the proud owner of what I affectionately call a Honda Davidson because it's cheaper than the Harley Davidson. (laughs) Riding my motorcycle is one of my favorite activities to reduce stress. I love these fall days that I can enjoy a relaxing ride home or through the canyon and feel the wind blowing around me. I will admit that that I enjoy being stopped at a red light or just when I've started my motorcycle and I'm in neutral revving the engine, and I do so loudly. I love the sound and the feeling, the vibration of the engine. I love feeling the power that I'm sitting on and ready to let go. But therein lies the difference. At some point, to enjoy the ride, I have to put it in gear and use the power. How many of us spend our time in the gospel sitting in neutral and revving the engine? Unfortunately, to be all the way in, you have to use your faith and abilities to get out of neutral and use the power to serve as the Savior would and to become more like the Savior. We are all hearers of the word, which is just like sitting on my motorcycle, holding the clutch so the engine is in neutral and then revving the engine. Christ wants us to be doers of the word, which requires us to put our engines in gear and go to work. I pray that you don't leave here today just hearing my words, but that you choose to move all the way in. Take action. Do not wait for people to visit you. Go and lift others. Be active in your wards and apartments. Accept and fulfill callings. And do not wait for life to serve you. Find ways to serve and lift someone every day. Last year, as I was battling cancer for the fourth time and going through treatment, the soccer team came up with the Carolyn Can campaign. Believing that if anyone could beat cancer, it was me. Coach Jennifer Rockwood purchased shirts for everyone to wear. Words cannot express how inspiring this act was for me. Every day was a struggle to get out of bed and choose to fight. I would dread going to radiation, but often it was in that moment that I would receive a text reminding me that Carolyn can, or I would see the girls wearing their shirts and their yellow wristbands and their hope, faith, and energy, which was so contagious, would provide the strength I needed to continue to fight. Not every day was this simple. There were many days where I didn't have a bounce in my step or that it was hard to smile or laugh, and I found on those days my victory was simply just enduring the day. But because my soccer team lifted and served me, I found the energy to make it through each day and stay yoked with my Savior, who carried enough of my load so I could continue to press forward. One of my favorite scriptures is found in Romans 9, when Paul asked the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. This scripture has been a lifeline for me through difficult times. In the margins of my own scriptures, I have added, will cancer, being single, shortcomings, sin, or tragedy separate me from the love of Christ? Will there be a struggle in your life that will separate you from the love of Christ? If so, then please hear Paul's next words when he declares, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You are stronger than you think. Heavenly Father knows and loves each of you. If you will make sure that you are all the way in by trusting in the Lord, taking his yoke upon you, and following him, then he will make you a conqueror. I know that God lives, and I bear testimony that he is not sleeping while the tempest rages, and that he cares very much if you perish. Be all the way in, and I bear witness that he will always be by your side. I say these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is commitment to follow the Lord's way. We've just heard from Carolyn Billings. After the break, we'll return with Renata Tonks-Forsty for Finding Our Individual Path. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is commitment to follow the Lord's way. Next is Renata Tonks-Forsty, an assistant professor of sociology at Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled Finding Our Individual Path. Last week on July 24th, we honored the pioneers as we celebrated the 150th anniversary of their arrival in the Salt Lake Valley. It is now 1997, and the future is ahead of us, President Hinckley proclaimed last April at General Conference. He noted that great things were expected of the pioneers and that great things are now expected of us. He said that we now have, quote, an overwhelming challenge to go on and build the kingdom of God. We must grasp the torch and run the race, end quote. The path our pioneer mothers and fathers walked was trying, and many lost their lives along the way. They walked with faith and sacrifice as they journeyed to Zion. Their way was difficult, and I hear many of us today say that we don't think we would have made it had we lived back then. Once the first saints arrived in the valley, many followed. Their travels were unique, but the path was marked, the direction known. Today, I believe that our task is in many ways as arduous as that as the early saints. The path we walk, however, is not a physical trail broken through frontier lands. It is a personal path that we must each find and follow. Our challenge today is not only to survive the journey, but to first find the trail. Elder M. Russard Ballard in April conference explained that, quote, it was hard to walk across a continent to establish a new home in a dry western desert. But who can say that today is any more difficult than is the task of living faithful, righteous lives in today's confusingly sinful world? 
where the trail is constantly shifting and where divine markers of right and wrong are being replaced by political expediency and diminishing morality. The road we travel today is treacherous, and the scriptures tell us it will continue to be so until the very end." We live in a modern, complex society that is continually changing. The society you join as young adults is very different than even the society your parents lived in. Technological advances are overwhelming. My daughters were always surprised to hear that we didn't have personal computers and videos and CDs and even microwaves when I was a little girl, and I'm really not that old. The challenges that your generation faces are even different than the ones I experienced as a freshman at BYU 20 years ago. Reynolds Farley, a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, in his book The New American Reality, relates that, quote, The 1990 census and many surveys conducted more recently tell us how people are now adapting, some with great success and others not well at all, to the massive social and economic trends that will make the United States in the year 2000 extremely different from what it was in generations past. Just a little more than a generation ago, in the 1950s, a young white man with a high school education, a strong back, and a dedication to work, would likely find a good blue-collar job with a prosperous manufacturing firm. He knew that if he came to work regularly and pleased his boss, his wages would rise year after year. He could afford to marry while he was in his early 20s and could buy a starter home in the suburbs before he reached his 30s. Although some women in the high school graduating classes of the 1950s attended college, most did not. Rather, they married before they were old enough to vote. Divorces occurred, but they were rare, and women expected that their husbands would remain with them and support them as they stayed at home taking care of three or even four children while they were still in their 20s. Many white women held jobs in that brief interval between the completion of school and marriage, but few did so when they were caring for young children. Professor Farley continues, he said, It is a very different nation in the 1990s. A young man graduating from high school with a dedication to work and a strong back may find an attractive job with good benefits, but the odds are not in his favor. If he is successful in locating work, the job will pay about 25% less, adjusted for inflation, than did the same job 20 years ago. A young woman might marry her high school sweetheart right after graduation, but if she does, she knows that their chances for a home in the suburbs and middle-class prosperity are slim unless both of them work full-time and at least one of them gets some specialized training in college. Since more than one-half of recent marriages end in divorce, a realistic young married woman must plan for the possibility that by her 30s she will be heading her own family with a child or two." Professor Farley remarks that, quote, "...the nation has never before simultaneously experienced both a fundamental economic restructuring and a basic shift in family life." He explains that young people today have had to adjust to these changes. They stay in school longer in order to improve their chances for employment, and they typically delay marriage until they are older. In addition, some changes, both social and economic changes, have opened up greater opportunities for young people compared to decades ago. 
In particular, progress has been made in expanding opportunities for women and minorities. Now, these adaptations to change by young people are also reflected in the student body at BYU. President Bateman, at April graduation, noted that during the 96-97 academic year, almost 8,300 students completed their educations, the largest graduating class yet, an increase of about 2,000 students since the mid-1980s. President Bateman noted that, quote, the impact on young women has been particularly strong. Although the number of women students at BYU has remained nearly constant during the past decade, approximately 4,000 women will graduate this year in contrast to 2,600 10 years ago, an increase of 60 percent, end quote. Thus, more women are graduating from BYU than ever before, and more are graduating married. According to statistics from the BYU Institutional Studies, during the 84-85 academic year when I graduated from BYU with my bachelor's, 44% of the women graduates were married. Ten years later, by the 94-95 academic year, the percentage had increased to 52%. In contrast, over the same 10-year period, the percentage of men who graduated married declined slightly from 68% to 65%. Thus, unlike the pattern of previous decades, young women today are more inclined to finish their educations, even after marriage. President Bateman, in his graduation address, noted the economic returns of education, stating that, quote, dollars invested in education provide one of the best returns available. A bachelor's degree increases the expected salaries of men and women by some 80 percent, end quote. Given the decline in men's wages since the 1970s, many women have found it necessary to contribute financially to their families. According to 1990 census statistics, families in which both spouses are employed comprise almost two-thirds of the households in Utah. Of these families, women provide on average 29 percent or almost a third of the family's income, the median family income being about 36000 In addition to completing their educations, more women now at BYU are returned missionaries compared to past years. For example, in 1985, only 9% of the returned missionaries on campus were women, whereas in 1995, 17% were women, almost double that of 10 years earlier. As opportunities for education and missionary service have increased for women, men at BYU have also made some noticeable adjustments. I left BYU in 1986 uh, when I completed my master's and returned about 10 years later in 1995 when I joined the faculty. And the most striking difference that I notice on campus now is not the number of new buildings, although there are a lot of them, but it's the number of men that you see walking across campus carrying babies. I mean, it's not unusual now to see a young father walking across campus with his little infant strapped in a snuggly to his chest. You didn't see that 10 years ago. I mean, we've even had discussion in the Daily Universe about putting diaper-changing tables in the men's restrooms. Men on campus today can be seen pushing strollers, taking infants with them to class, carrying diaper bags right alongside their backpacks. Kathleen Garrison, a professor of sociology at New York University, writes in her book, No Man's Land, Men's Changing Commitments to Family and Work. Quote, For several decades, the spotlight has been on the revolution in women's lives. 
But now we are beginning to recognize that men's lives, too, are undergoing profound change. While it is clear that most men no longer provide the sole or primary economic support to their families, it is less clear what new patterns of commitment they are developing instead. Today there is no single predominant road to manhood. Men have entered a no-man's land, a territory of undefined and shifting allegiances, in which they must negotiate difficult choices between freedom and commitment, privilege and sharing, and dominance and equality." Gerson notes that the various paths that men now follow have changed over time. Some still hold to the traditional breadwinner ethic, while other men now flee the responsibilities of parenthood and marital commitment. Still others are more involved in family life, especially child care, than were men in earlier generations. Thus, you have choices today that are very different from even the choices your parents had a few decades ago. In addition, the complexities of our modern society and the pervasive changes that you experience today will only intensify in the future. The course you must navigate is not a wilderness trek like that of the pioneers, but an individual path that each of you must blaze, as Elder Ballard noted, in a confusingly sinful world. So how do you meet these challenges? How do you determine what path you are to follow? How do you fulfill your mortal mission with honor and integrity? With so many choices in an ever-changing world, how do you decide about missions, school, work, family, and Church responsibilities? One of my students in a class, after we had discussed the choices that young people face today, she responded in frustration, I just wish somebody would tell me what to do. Now, obviously I can't tell you what to do, but I would like to share with you some of my thoughts about what I believe is the greatest challenge facing young people your age today that of finding your individual mortal mission. I believe that each of us has a unique and significant mission to fulfill in this life. Elder H. Burke Peterson, in an address to the youth of the Church, said, Do you think for a moment that Heavenly Father would have sent one of His children to this earth by accident without the possibility of a significant work to perform? You were preserved to come to the earth in this time for a special purpose— not just a few of you, but all of you. There are things for each of you to do that no one else can do as well as you. If you do not prepare to do them, they will not be done. Your mission is unique and distinctive for you. If you will let him, I testify that our Father in Heaven will walk with you through the journey of life and inspire you to know your special purpose here. If you will let him. I believe that is the key to our finding the path we must follow in this life. What is required of us to find our purpose and complete our journey was also required of the early saints—faith. William Clayton, who authored the words to Come, Come, Ye Saints, in a letter from Commerce, wrote, If you will be faithful, you have nothing to fear from the journey. The Lord will take care of His saints." Faith must be our mainstay, for it will reveal to us the purposes and the mysteries that God holds for each of us. It is our faith that will allow us to put our trust in the Lord and know that He will fulfill His promises. But if we are going to walk by faith and let the Lord inspire us as to our purpose in life, there are two traps in particular that we must avoid. As we reach to take the Lord's hand, 
We must first let go of two things, our will and our pride. Because of our agency, we must choose to subject our will to that of the Father and to give Him the glory. As we step out of our boat and onto the water, we must have faith. These two traps are interconnected, for we must be willing to give up our pride in order to subject ourselves to the will of the Father. These traps ensnare us when we attempt to tell the Lord what we will or will not do. For example, we are each raised in a family and community environment in which we learn particular traditions or roles. Many times, because of the unique culture within which we are raised, we limit the possible paths down which the Lord can direct us by just assuming that we will follow certain roles, thus not considering other possibilities. In this way, we tell the Lord what we will or will not do. We must be willing to look beyond our own cultural stereotypes or our own limited perceptions of the world in order to see the opportunities the Lord has for us. Peter, when the Lord directed him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, had to look beyond his cultural biases in order to understand and fulfill this important mission. The scriptures tell us that Peter went upon the housetop to pray, and there he had a vision. He saw a sheet let down to the earth on which were all manner of forfeited animals, wild beasts, creeping things, and fowls of the air. And the Lord told Peter to kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for he had never eaten anything that was unclean or common. And the voice of the Lord told him a second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. After the vision ended, Peter was uncertain as to its meaning. Acting in faith, without a full understanding of the Lord's purposes, Peter followed the Spirit's direction and went to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. He told Cornelius that it was unlawful for a Jew to keep company with a Gentile, but that God has shown him, as he now realized, that he should not call any man common or unclean. Because of social norms, Peter's first reaction was repulsion, but his faith allowed him to subject his will to that of the Lord's and fulfill his mission in building the kingdom. Like Peter, we also may receive inspiration that seems contrary to our traditions or social norms. I was a teenager in the 1970s, and I shared certain biases about sister missionaries. I decided very early when I was young that I would never go on a mission. It wasn't until I went to BYU and met other young women who were preparing for missionary service that I realized that my stereotypes were unfounded and that I was limiting my opportunities for growth. After prayerful consideration, now on my knees to the Lord, the Lord confirmed to me that I should serve a mission. And this is a great blessing that continues in my life. To let the Lord guide us, we first must let go of our biases or false traditions as we conform our will to the Lord's. In addition, we sometimes disregard options in life because we question our own ability to succeed. Instead of telling the Lord what we will not do, we tell Him what we cannot do. At times, the Lord can prompt us to follow a certain path, and we must have the faith to overcome our weaknesses and do the Lord's will. One of our graduate students in sociology related to me her experience in applying to our Ph.D. program, which I share with her permission. Jill said that she was at a point in her life when she was trying to decide what to do next. She was considering various options. One day, as she was walking across campus, she received the inspiration that she should apply to the Ph.D. program in sociology. She was surprised by this because her training and her work previous to that had been in social work, and she had no background in sociology. 
Despite her doubts, she applied to the program and was accepted, but she continued to question her ability to succeed. During her first year in the graduate program, she sought and received three priesthood blessings regarding her decision, and each time the priesthood mouthpiece confirmed to her that indeed she was doing what the Lord wanted her to do. But she continued to question her ability to succeed in her classes. Finally, after the third blessing, her roommate gave her some wise counsel. Jill said, I told her that I was having a hard time with statistics again, and I expected her to console me as she had always done in the past. I told her about the blessing that I had received from the bishop a few weeks before. My roommate said, Don't you trust God? Well, of course I do, was Jill's reply. No, you don't, her roommate responded. You don't understand, Jill said. I trust God. I just don't trust myself. Then you don't trust God, her roommate told her. If you trusted God, you would believe him when he says you can do statistics or anything else in this program. Jill said, I knew she was right, but now I was faced with a real dilemma. In order to succeed at statistics, I had to stop panicking, stop telling myself I couldn't do it, and believe God, who said I could do it. I had to trust in God when I didn't even trust myself. Finally, Jill said I decided that if God was omnipotent, then he knew everything there was to know about statistics. So what better tutor could I have for this subject than God? That was a turning point. Jules received the comfort and guidance she needed to complete her coursework and successfully finish the semester. She continues to work hard in the program, but now with less anxiety. She knows that through hard work she can succeed because she's doing what the Lord wants her to do, and she has faith in Him. We must trust the Lord and know, as Nephi said, that He gives no command without preparing a way for us to succeed. The Lord has His own purposes, and they often do not match ours. We must look beyond our personal weaknesses and our biases as we seek and follow His guidance. Be careful about telling the Lord what you will not do or what you cannot do. Now, we also need to be careful about telling the Lord what we will do. We can become so obsessed with a particular path that we become immobilized or deaf to the promptings of our Father in Heaven's Spirit. Now, I know this doesn't happen much, but occasionally you see this among BYU students in relation to the desire to marry. Now, don't misunderstand me. It is a righteous desire to want to marry. But in some cases, individuals can become so obsessed with finding a mate that they ignore the Lord's direction. Some of you might be familiar with the Calvin Grandal cartoon in his book Freeway to Perfection, where there's this very proper young woman sitting on the edge of her bed, and behind her there are three huge pieces of paper. And the first one says, Daily goals, number one, get married. The second one says, Weekly goals, number one, get married. And the third one says, Monthly, yearly goals, number one, get married. Now, I recognize that the anxiety over finding a mate begins early in life. It's part of our socialization, especially as women. My daughter Mary, when she was five years old, she came to me once and she said, Mom, what happens if there aren't enough boys for all the girls to marry when they grow up? I thought, she's five years old and she's already worried about the sex ratio imbalance. But I could tell she was thinking about it really hard. And all of a sudden, her eyes lit up and she said, I know. She said, if there aren't enough boys for all the girls to marry, they can marry wolves. (laughs) So see, you have other options. (laughs) I think she'd been watching a little too much Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Now, 
Because eternal marriage is a righteous desire, it is important to be temple-worthy and prepare yourself for the opportunity. But marriage is not something you have complete control over. It does involve another person. So to obsess over it can actually hinder your search for a mate. The Lord will tell you when the time, place, and circumstances are right. He may have other work for you to perform first that will help prepare you to be a better spouse and parent. If you are to let the Lord guide, we must be open to the potential paths that He may direct us down, all according to His timetable, not ours. The opportunity to marry is more likely to come not when we are worrying or obsessing about it, but when we are getting on with other aspects of our lives. Thus, be careful about telling the Lord what you will do and when. Instead, prepare yourself by living righteously, and then let your Father in Heaven reveal to you His purposes as He guides you through the trials and the turbulence of mortal striving. As you openly and prayerfully consider the path you should follow, the Lord will direct you. Elder John H. Groberg related his own experience in choosing his path. Quote, in the past, I have tried to figure out whether I should go into business or into teaching or into the arts or whatever. As I have begun to proceed along one path, having more or less gathered the facts I could, I have found that if that decision was wrong or was taking me down the wrong path, not necessarily an evil one, but one that was not right for me, without fail the Lord has always let me know, just this emphatically, that is wrong. Do not go that way. That is not for you. On the other hand, there may have been two or three ways that I could have gone, any one of which would have been right and would have been in the general area, providing the experience and means whereby I could fulfill the mission that the Lord had in mind for me. If it is wrong, He will let us know. We will feel it for sure. I am positive of that. So rather than saying, I will not move until I have this burning in my heart, let us turn it around and say, I will move unless I feel it is wrong. And if it is wrong, that I will not do it. By eliminating all of these wrong courses, very quickly you will find yourself going in the direction that you ought to be going. And then you can receive the assurance, Yes, I am doing what my Father in Heaven wants me to do. End quote. As you take the Lord's hand and walk in faith, you will excel in your righteous undertakings, and you will fulfill your mortal mission with honor and integrity. However, as we experience success in life, we must remember to acknowledge the Lord's hand in all that we have and let go of our pride. President Benson said that pride is characterized by asking, What do I want out of my life? rather than asking, What would God have me do with my life? He said, quote, It is self-will as opposed to God's will. It is fear of man over fear of God. End quote. As the Lord blesses us with success, we must remember that unto much is given, much is required. For example, each of you have been blessed with the opportunity of acquiring higher education. Do you realize that only 40% of people your age are enrolled in college in the more affluent countries of the world and less than 3% in the poorest countries of the world? You have access to resources and opportunities that are beyond the reach of the majority of the world's population. Remember, as you earn your degrees and gain prestige in your fields, that it is the Lord's kingdom you are to build, not your own. Center your interest in the Church and remember the Lord's utterance, Thou shalt have no other God before me. My children are the ones who humble me and help me keep things in perspective. We recently um, hosted three young women in our home for dinner who were finalists for the Hinckley Scholarship. 
My daughter Mary was helping me fix dinner and set the table, and then she wanted to drive with me to go pick up the young women and bring them back to our home. And as we were starting to leave, she said, Mom, she says, I'm really nervous about meeting these students. And I said, well, that's okay, because they're probably nervous about meeting us. And she said, well, why? And so I explained to her that they were high school students, and probably the idea of meeting a college professor and going to their home for dinner was probably you know, making them nervous, too. And she stopped and she said, Mom, she said, I know you're a college professor and everything, but you're my mother. She said, those students are going to be so relieved when they see it's you. Take advantage of the opportunities the Lord has given you and do your best. But remember to praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Only in humility, as you let go of your pride, can you give up your will to the Father and take His hand in faith. If you will let Him, He will direct you. Be thou humble in thy weakness, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give thee answer to thy prayers. Be thou humble in thy pleading, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee with a sweet and calm assurance that he cares. Elder Groberg suggests that we each, quote, reaffirm in our lives the importance of at least three things. First, that God our Father in heaven does have a specific mission for all of us to fulfill and perform while we are here upon this earth. Second, that we can here and now in this life discover what that mission is. And third, that with His help, we can fulfill that mission and know and have assurance here and now in this life that we are doing that which is pleasing to our Father in Heaven. These are all very important concepts, and they are all true." Remember, too, that each mission is unique. I had the opportunity as a youth at a youth conference to speak with Sister Ruth Funk, who was the former uh, General Young Women's President. And she told me something that greatly influenced my life. She said, the Lord wants us all to return to Him, but not in a straight line. Although we all must keep the commandments and receive the saving ordinances, the individual paths we follow and the decisions we make regarding school, work, and family will be individual. As Elder Peterson said, quote, There are things for each of you to do that no one else can do as well as you. End quote. That's why we can't judge each other. It would do us all good to remember the popular Utah Creed that was stitched as a reminder in a sampler by a convert to the Church in 1860. And in this little sampler it says, The Mormon Creed is to mind your own business. We need to support each other, although our paths may be different. Some of you will follow traditional paths. Others will be called to blaze new trails. As long as you are doing what the Lord requires of you, you have nothing to fear from the journey. One of the greatest examples we have of someone who has humbly sought the Lord's guidance in fulfilling his mortal mission is President Hinckley. Sister Sherry L. Dew, in the preface to her biography of President Hinckley, writes of one of her early meetings with the Prophet. She met with him after he had read about the first third of the manuscript. And after a long pause, he looked at her and he said, I am sick, sick, sick of reading about Gordon Hinckley. He said, There is just too much about Gordon Hinckley in this manuscript. Sister Dew said she thought, well, just whom should I write about in your biography? But she couldn't think of a respectful way to say it, so she kept quiet. Then she received a mini-sermon from the prophet. He said, adulation is poison. He told her, adulation has ruined many a good man and woman, and I don't want this book to portray me as something I'm not. Sister Dew then pointed out to President Hinckley that they had a small problem. 
He wanted her to write a book that said he was just a common, ordinary man. Well, I am, he interrupted. Sister Dew then explains in the preface that she never found anything to support his claim that he is a common, ordinary man. She notes that by the time he became president of the Church, President Hinckley had served nearly 60 years at Church headquarters. After 38 years of service as a general authority and 15 years in the First Presidency, his influence in missionary work, temple building, and public affairs is now recognized. President James E. Faust, his second counselor, said that perhaps no man who has become president of the Church has been more extensively or better prepared to lead the saints than President Hinckley. Sister Dew concludes that, quote, Indeed, there is no hyperbole in stating that President Hinckley has influenced the onward march of the gospel kingdom in ways paralleled by few others, and in the process he has molded a life worthy of emulation, end quote. President Hinckley has lived his life according to one simple maxim. The only way to get anything done is to get on your knees and ask for the Lord's help, and then get to your feet and go to work. I believe the prophet sees himself as an ordinary man, one who has only done the work the Lord has asked of him the best he could. If only we would each go and do the same. President Hinckley sees the vision. He's leading the way. He knows we have a kingdom to build, a message to share, and lives to change, and he's leading the charge. And I'm afraid that if we don't get behind him, most of us are going to be left in the dust. I bear you my witness that Gordon B. Hinckley is a prophet of God and that the Lord speaks to him as fervently, if not more fervently, than he spoke to old Israel. We have a loving Father in heaven, and as we are guided by him, we will be able to excel in our righteous undertakings and fulfill our mortal missions with honor and integrity. As you near the year 2000 and prepare to meet the challenges of the future, please remember Elder Peterson's words. There are things for each of you to do that no one else can do as well as you. If you will let him, I testify that our Father in Heaven will walk with you through the journey of life and inspire you to know your purpose here. To this testimony, I add my own in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Commitment to Follow the Lord's Way with thoughts from Carolyn Billings and Renata Tonks-Forsty. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.